Before we turn to the Word of God, we'll unite our hearts briefly in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that thy blessing will be upon us as we meditate for a little time upon thy Word. I pray that thou wilt fill me with thy Spirit, pour out thy Spirit upon each one of us. May we say, as Samuel was instructed, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Speak to me, speak to each one of us. Hear and answer prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My text is found in verse 41 of that chapter we were reading from, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. The prophecy of Isaiah divides very neatly into two sections. It's interesting that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah as there are 66 books in the Bible. Now we realize that the chapter divisions are not inspired, but it's quite interesting uh, that uh, the chapters should correspond uh, with the books. And if you think there are 39 books in the Old Testament, and when you come to the end of chapter 39 of Isaiah, you end the first great section of Isaiah. And chapter 40, the chapter that we have chosen uh, to take our text from, it begins with saying, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And it speaks of preparing the way of the Lord. And those verses are applied in the New Testament to the ministry of John the Baptist. And it says, behold, your God cometh. And does the New Testament not reveal to us the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's quite amazing when the chapter divisions are not inspired that Isaiah should divide so neatly into two sections, chapters 31 to 39 and then chapters 40 to 66, 27 chapters corresponding in a sense uh, with the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, so marked is the difference between the first section of Isaiah and the second sections section that the critics said that there were two Isaiahs. They spoke of Isaiah and Deutero, which means second, second Isaiah. The reason they did that was because there's such prophecy in the second section, especially in chapter 53. And the critics can't bear the thought that Isaiah could have predicted 700 years before the coming of Christ the sufferings, the work of Christ on the cross, his rejection. And in chapter 53, incidentally, the middle chapter of the New Testament, if I put that in inverted commas, the middle chapter of the New Testament of Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. It speaks of his intercession for the transgressors. Did Christ not pray on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It speaks about his being numbered with the transgressors, and on either side of Christ was a transgressor. The thief that got saved, the thief that refused to accept Christ as his Savior. It tells of the fact that he would have a triumph on the cross, because it says, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Christ would see the fruit of his work. That could only be 
by means of the resurrection. And then in a remarkable statement, it says, he made his grave with the wicked. Now, some say that that indicates that was the intention of uh, the authorities, that Christ would make his grave with wicked, that he would be buried uh, or burnt, cremated alongside the two thieves. Uh, Others believe, and that's what I believe, he did make his grave with the wicked. He died between the two thieves. And then a, a most remarkable statement, perhaps the most remarkable of all, and with the rich in his death. How could that be? One crucified as, in the eyes of his persecutors, the worst of the offenders, and he makes his grave in death with the rich. Well, Joseph of Arimathea, as we know, a rich man, he had a tomb that he had carved out for himself for the day when he would die. He came to Pilate, he craved the body of Christ, and Christ was buried in a rich man's tomb. That's just one section of prophecy uh, in the Old Testament confirming Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world. There was no offense in him, yet he died in the place of sinners. You could have rich pickings and more than pickings. In Isaiah 53, you could spend days, you could spend weeks drawing rich sustenance from that 53rd chapter and indeed from the whole of the prophecy. Now, this chapter that we've drawn our text from is the first of Isaiah's New Testament. It speaks, as we've seen, of the coming of Christ. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to deliver men and women from their sins. And it says, Behold your God. And it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Now in the verse of our text, we read, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So there's a recuperation from spiritual weakness and a becoming spiritually strong indicated in the text. And the secret, as we shall see, is spending time in the presence of God. And the first point I want to make is this. Out of fellowship with God, man, even the best of men, even the godliest of men, become cynical and defeatist. Notice how our text begins. It begins with the word but. And but is a contrastive word. It points out a contrast between what has gone before. And the idea of what has gone before is that even the best of people, if they do not spend time and uh, become strengthened and renewed in the presence of God, they will very quickly become weak and disillusioned and defeatist and also cynical. You go to the verse before, it says, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. So what does that mean, the youths shall faint? Well, the youths, it speaks of those who are young and strong. And well, I've long since lost the vigor of youth. But when you're young, you think you can do many things. You can, that you can climb that mountain, you can do this, you can do that. But after a while, depending on natural strength, uh, out of fellowship with God, not depending on him, you become weary. 
and you become faint. And that's what it says. The young men, uh, they shall faint. Uh, or the youths shall faint. And it says the young men. And that indicates in that expression the very best, the choice of young men, the flower of youth. And it says they shall utterly fall. Ideas, they stumble, they totter, they become feeble. And without God, man becomes cynical, he becomes defeatist. Look at verse 27 to bear that out. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest to Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Here are people, and they say, God's not looking at us. God is not interested in us. My way is passed over from my God. He has other things to think of, greater projects. He's not thinking of me, a poor little me. He's not thinking of me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I've tried in my own strength to do things, and I have failed, and now I fear that there will not be a future for me. There will not be a future for the work of God. And we think that God doesn't care. That is an attitude that prevails when man gets away from God. In Psalm 78, uh, you have the recitation of the children of Israel in the wilderness, picking out certain things in their past as they journeyed uh, from Egypt to the promised land. And it quotes the people asking a question, can God furnish a table in the wilderness. And that's a cynical attitude. Children of Israel, they're journeying to the promised land and there's no food. There's no food. It's a most interesting circumstance. We don't often think about it this way. But imagine yourself in their predicament and we'll take it into the 21st century. You have no money. There's no grocery store near you. You have the last bite of food eaten uh, that's in the house. And tomorrow's a fresh day. There's no place to get food. Where is the food to come from? That's how the Israelites were situated in a wilderness. They could travel hundreds and hundreds of miles and there's no sustenance. And cynically, they asked the question, can he furnish a table in the wilderness? How is God going to feed all of us? There were probably between three and five million people. I remember reading in A.W. Pink how many trains with carriages it would take to feed about three million people. And I know that in Canada, you have very long trains. Uh, My wife and I were here 10 years ago. and uh, The guide was showing us this train that snaked uh, uh, through the mountain and you saw a section and then round a corner another section and then round a corner another section and on three levels one of your trains carrying provisions or carrying whatever they were carrying well uh, pink details how many trains with so many carriages it would have taken to feed three million people in the wilderness and remember when you've eaten today's provision that's it all gone You need a fresh set of trains and carriages the next day and the next day. And the only day that you got sufficient for the next day was on the day that we call Friday. Because the next day was the Sabbath and there was no gathering of food on the Sabbath. God sent manna and supplied the needs of those people 
in spite of their skepticism, in spite of their asking the question, can he furnish a table in the wilderness? And then, of course, they were equally skeptical about supplying them with water. Came tomorrow, the water's bitter. And the Lord sweetens the water with a tree that is cut down. And that tree pictures, and I don't want to go into detail, it's a picture of the work of Christ on the cross that sweetens our lives and brings revival to our hearts and refreshment and new life to us. But he, he also gave them water constantly out of the rock that was smitten. Another picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, without thinking of God, without drawing near to God, we become defeatist. We become cynical. And today, there's much cynicism. You probably listen to many preachers in this pulpit, probably myself included, and you've heard preachers preach on revival, that there have been revivals in the past. In America, 1857, a great revival began that resulted in the conversion of between half a million and a million souls. That spread across to the United Kingdom. In Ulster, where we live, uh, there were approximately 100,000 people professed salvation in 1859, roughly the same number in Wales, many in Scotland, many in England. Spurgeon was seeing revival in the tabernacle at that time in London. So you hear these things. You hear of the great missionaries going to the mission field, seeing God at work. And today, we look around and we say, well, it's different today. It may have been fine uh, in the Victorian age. It may have been fine in days that are gone uh, when people didn't have television and all the amusements they have today. It doesn't happen today and it's not happening and it's not going to happen. We become cynical. And in spite of a preacher preaching or a friend encouraging us, we say it's not going to happen. And uh, we forget what God has done we forget what God can do. And the result is that the tide, the tide of blessing, because in a measure of our cynicism, it goes out further and further. And what a sad thing that is. Uh, we, we become defeatist. My judgment, my cause, my case is passed over. And the idea there is it has vanished or uh, it has uh, emigrated even. Uh, my, uh, my judgment, my cause, God's forgotten about it. It's gone off to some other land. They might have some blessing, but I'm not going to receive it. It's not going to come here. It's not going to be uh, in Calgary. It's not going to be in Canada. And in Ulster, we say, it's not going to be in Ulster. And the idea is God's no longer interested. We're in the wrong dispensation. That was fine many years ago, but revival isn't possible today. And we have a defeatist attitude. The Oxford English Dictionary says that the defeatist is a person who expects or is, ex is ex excessively ready to accept failure. Is that you? Is that me? Are we defeatist? We expect to fail. Or we're excessively ready to accept failure. And I quoted last Sunday when I was preaching... Winston Churchill, our great uh, uh, Prime Minister, he spoke of Field Marshal Lord Montgomery as he became known, and he said that Montgomery in victory was insufferable, uh, but 
Uh, he said in defeat, he was indomitable. Anytime Montgomery had a setback, uh, he wouldn't accept that. He pressed on to the next uh, battle and to the next crisis, and he was uh, indomitable, couldn't be defeated. And the result, of course, we know was his great triumph at El Alamein over Rommel's forces. Are we like that? Are we determined to see God at work? Or do we too readily accept defeat? And and the second point I want to make is this. In spite of man's cynicism and his defeatist attitude, God has not changed. This chapter is a glorious chapter showing to us the greatness of God. Look at verse 28 of the chapter. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. You and I are dealing not with a helpless God, not with the God of the mockers. We're dealing with the God who is infinite. I love that definition in the shorter catechism. What is God, we ask? God is a spirit, infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's infinite. There's no limit uh, to his wisdom, no limit to his power, no limit to his goodness, and so on. And sometimes I've thought about this. God the Father, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and so on. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. God the Holy Spirit, our comforter, the one who indwells every child of God and uh, whom we are instructed to seek to be filled with, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, this being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And look through the chapter. Look at verse 12, for example. I could pick many verses in this chapter. It says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span, with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales, and the hills in a balance. Now, it's speaking metaphorically here, but what does it say of God? It says, so great is God that all the oceans, and you cross the mighty Atlantic, you go to the Indian Ocean, the Arctic Ocean, uh, the Pacific Ocean, and to God, uh, he can hold that in the hollow of his hand. All the, the oceans of the earth. And I know, I say again, I emphasize it, speaking metaphorically, he, he weighs the dust of the earth in a balance. So what an amount of dust there is across this earth. Uh, and the mountains and scales. So great is God. You, you put a little drop of water in the hollow of your hand. You hold it. It's only a little drop. It's nothing. But that's how great God is. The oceans, the oceans are just like a, a little drop of water, a little teaspoon of water in the hollow of God's hand. And we can go through this chapter. You can look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the eyes as a very little thing. Verse 70, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are accounted to him less than nothing in vanity. We think people are mighty. 
Uh, we think of the, uh, the, the great people down through the centuries and the millennia. They're nothing. All the nations, all the nations are as nothing before, less than nothing. And vanity, vanity is something that's very empty. It's nothing to God. That's how great God is. And don't we sing uh, of God when then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And the greatest and grandest display of God's power and God's greatness is seen in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, One Christian poet wrote these words, God in the person of his Son hath all his mightiest works outdone. And that's true. That's true. When God made the world, he just had to speak. But to save multitudes, a multitude that no man can number out of every kindred, nation and people and tongue, the Son of God, equally God with the Father and the Spirit, had to come. He had to humble himself to come as a little babe to Bethlehem. He had to humble himself to work at the carpenter's bench until the time came for him uh, to come forth, to be baptized, to commence his great work and to go about doing good, healing those that were oppressed of the devil and then to climax his work with the shedding of his blood in his death on Calvary's cross. That was essential. And Christ was pushed, pushed, we might say pushed to the limit to save us from our sins. Think of him uh, a few days, about a week before he went to the cross and he said, now is my soul troubled. And he's tossed about it. Suddenly it seems the awfulness of the cross came upon him. I know there are times, you know, when we're facing a crisis and maybe we keep pushing it back and hoping it won't come. And then, then it dawns on us. That crisis hour has come. Christ says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, he says, came I unto this hour. In Gethsemane, he prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His sweat fell to the ground as great drops of blood. An angel came from heaven to strengthen him. But Christ went through with it. And on the cross, we think of those words, those uh, words of great pathos. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So I say again in the words of the poet, God in the person of his Son hath all his mightiest works outdone. And what am I trying to say to you here? I'm saying to you that God hasn't changed in spite of our cynicism. God hasn't changed. It's you and I that have changed. But God hasn't changed. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We have a great word we use, immutable. I mean, just simply doesn't change. God is immutable. Jesus Christ doesn't change. And the God of Luther is still alive. The God of John Knox, the God of the great missionary Hudson Taylor. And I started to read again his biography on the plane over here. And what a work Hudson Taylor and his wife Maria did. What a work. And God who used Hudson Taylor and his wife and others in China, he hasn't changed. The God of Mary Slessor, 
hasn't changed. Young Scottish girl whose father was an alcoholic saw God at work in Scotland, winning young people, and then went out to the Calabar region of Nigeria and saw the hand of God moving there. That God, the God of the Bible, hasn't changed. But that leads me to my next point, and I'm conscious of the time. In order to draw strength and comfort from this great God, we need to spend time in his presence. What do we read? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, waiting will indicate spending time with God. Many people just rush in and out of God's presence. In fact, they don't even get into God's presence. Uh, You know how many unsaved people pray, uh, God bless this, God bless that person, and that's nearly the height of it. There's no drawing near to God. There's no getting to know God. Waiting upon the Lord indicates spending time in his presence, getting to know him. Sometimes it's like the Israelites, when you think of their camp and days gone by, when they set up the tabernacle, there's the court of the Gentiles, there's the court of the people, and then there's the court of the priests, and then there's the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. Well, when we come into God's presence, in a way, we start at the very outskirts, And as we spend time, we're drawn closer and closer. And we feel our hearts being melted. We feel God drawing near and touching us and doing us good. And we delight in it then. Many people think of it, oh, I couldn't spend an hour in God's presence. I would would go crazy. I just couldn't think of what to say. And I, I would be restless. Yes, you would be. But wait. Wait. Doesn't a young couple in love delight to spend time with one another? Delight so much that they want to be married to one another? Yes. Well, if we love the Lord, we should delight in his presence. Martin Luther said he had so much to do, he wouldn't get it done unless he spent three hours in prayer. I'm not saying you need to spend three hours. But that was the feeling of Luther. What a mighty work Martin Luther did. And I could mention others. And... uh, I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult to settle. We're easily distracted, and the devil seeks to hinder us when we come before the Lord in prayer. And the flesh, the old nature that we're born with, doesn't like it. But waiting, waiting does mean spending time before God. And it also indicates a submission to God, obedience to his voice. When you come before God to wait upon him, you're surrendering. You're saying, not my will, thy will be done, O Lord. Think of the waiter or waitress in the restaurant. In a way, they submit themselves to your will. They come along, might show you the menu sheet and say, what would you like? What would you like for starters? What would you like for your main course? What about a dessert? Would you like a dessert? And would you like tea or coffee afterwards? They're submissive to your will. You say, I'd like this, I'd like that, and so on. And they will go, and they will fulfill your order. When you come before God in prayer, you're coming to submit yourself to God. You're saying, not my will, but thine be done. And waiting upon God, yes, prayer is essential, but also you wait on God as you read the Scriptures, and you lift up your hearts, and you say, uh, Speak, Lord, 
Speak to me from my word. Feed my soul. Give me direction in my life. And then something else in connection with waiting is meditation. The blessed man that we sang about from Psalm 1, in his law doth he meditate day and night. People don't meditate. And so much is lost by a lack of meditation. (coughs) Dr. Douglas, who was principal of our Bible college for 32 years, was minister in a church in Northern Ireland. It's called Money Slain. And a lady from the church, I was interim moderator there for four years, many years ago. And a lady from the church that I visited told me that she and her husband, after Mr. Douglas had preached in the morning, they had a journey of about, I suppose, 15, 20 minutes to their home. And she said, they didn't speak one word to one another. Not because they were at variance, but because they were meditating upon the word of God that they had heard. I remember some years ago telling Dr. Douglas about that. and He had, he had never heard that. But that was the situation. They meditated on the word of God. And you meditate and you draw richly uh, from the things of God. And of course, when you come before God and wait upon God, it requires faith. Uh, the Bible says that, uh, you know, when we pray before God, uh, we, expect, uh, uh, we expect to receive. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, it, it tells us that he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them uh, uh, that seek him, that diligently seek him. In Psalm 62, the psalm says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Yes, if you don't expect to receive anything from God, you won't. Uh, A previous minister in our church, uh, he's long since dead, this man, and he was speaking one time at a prayer meeting that I was at, and he said about this lady, and she said, you know, if you have faith, you can remove mountains. Christ said, you can say to this mountain. And this lady had a mountain that she didn't like. It was uh, blocking her view from her home, she thought. So she prayed that the Lord would remove the mountain. She got up in the morning, looked out the window and said, huh, I knew it wouldn't be gone. She didn't expect anything. And it wasn't necessary for that mountain to be removed. Uh, the Lord's speaking in different terms when he speaks of those mountains. But are we not like that? that lady many times, we pray and we don't expect anything to happen. We we nearly say with the lady, I knew it wouldn't happen. Yes, my soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. So there's no excuses for cynicism. There's no excuse for uh, defeatism. God is great. We wait upon him. It says we renew our strength. And that takes me to my last point. I'm aware of my time. The result of waiting upon God. You renew your strength or you change. You change your strength. You exchange your weakness for God's strength. When I was seeking to illustrate this, I thought of the old stagecoach that we see uh, or may have seen in old westerns. Uh, the, the, The horses are pulling the carriage and they come to a staging post and they stop and they, they take the six or eight horses that are pulling the coach and they take them out of the harness and they put in fresh horses. And uh, the other horses, the first group, why they could go on, but they would get weary and the journey would become cumbersome. 
Well, that's the way with us many times. Uh, we, we, we gradually grind to a halt, as we've seen. But you come into the presence of God, it's like uh, that staging post, the fresh horses, and away we go. Uh, and instead of the weakness that we're feeling, uh, we have new vigor, new strength, uh, new enthusiasm to go forward with God. We have strength to live for Christ, to witness for Christ, to suffer for him, to serve him, even strength to die for him. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 33, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Yes, we're renewed in strength. And it says we, we mount up with wings as eagles. I, I like to think of that as having what I might call ecstatic experiences. You might think I'm getting charismatic here now when I talk about ecstatic experiences. And what I'm really saying is you, you get lifted right up into the presence of God. And Paul, uh, uh, Paul was not a, uh, a person uh, given to, uh, to drama. But Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 speaks of a man, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, yes, it is 2 Corinthians 12, he says he knew a man in Christ and he was caught up into the third heaven. Now, all the commentators believe that that was Paul himself. He speaks in the third person, uh, because it's so personal, he, he puts it into the third person. And he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. That is an ecstatic experience. Now, I'm not saying we live out of body experiences or experiences that we don't know whether we're in the body or out of the body. But we'll have that ecstatic experience where we're drawn up spiritually into the presence of God. And he, he saw things that he could not express God didn't allow him to express. So wonderful were they. So wonderful. What a preparation that must have been for Paul's future ministry. Drawn into the very presence of God. We can ascend into heaven in spirit as we draw near to the Lord and wait upon him. John Wesley on the 24th of May 1738 was in a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London and someone read the preface to Luther's uh, commentary on the book of Romans and John Wesley said he felt his heart strangely warmed his heart strangely warmed that's the sort of experience I'm talking about not some charismatic experience your heart strangely warmed drawn into the presence of God feeling a fresh love for Christ being energized rising up it says and when you rise up as the eagle you get a bird's eye view the eagle literally has a bird's eye view. Sometimes our problems are like mountains. And you look away up and you say, I can't manage that. I can't cope. Yet, but if you were the eagle, you can see the mountain in perspective. That's what happens when you draw near to God's presence. You run, you're not weary. You have zeal that doesn't peter out. I mentioned the Apostle Paul. He seems to have that eager, youthful spirit right to the end of his life and says they walk and they don't faint. There's a steadiness. They're not excitable people. Yes, they're zealous, but they're not excitable. They're calm. And there's a calmness in their soul. That's the sort of person you'll go to for advice if you need help. That's a most useful person. A calm person, yet a zealous person. A person who lives, as it were, in the presence of God. Here is the challenge. Uh, we don't want to be cynics. We don't want to be defeatist. 
but we want to be zealous and strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And if there's someone here and you're not saved, why, you have every right to feel defeatist in yourself. But there's life in Jesus Christ. There's salvation in Jesus Christ. There's cleansing from sin in the great Savior that came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Come to him, I say. Turn from your sin to the Savior and call upon his name. For Romans 10 and 13 says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to sing.